Hi, everybody, and welcome to Robcast number 25. This one is called The Sheet Factor. So welcome to The Sheet Factor. And what a week it's been. Wednesday and Thursday night, we launched the Everything is Spiritual Tour at the Regent Theater in Los Angeles. So I got to meet a ton of you, and I got to hear your stories, and I got to share with you this tour. And I swear this tour is one of the most exciting things I've ever gotten to be a part of. And for so many of you to come out and just the love and the hugs and the photos we got to take together, just amazing. So uh, next week, tour continues. We go San Diego, then Phoenix, then Tulsa. Tulsa, I'm coming your way. And then we go around the rest of the country, 31 cities. And a number of you have been downloading the tour promo materials and hanging posters and attaching um, the promo stuff on weird places, and you're making me laugh. You are very clever, you Robcast listeners. And as always, if you put it up and tag me on Instagram, and it's good, clever, funny, um, I'll put you on my guest list, free tickets for you and a friend for the tour when it comes to your city. So that offer still stands, and some of you seriously making me laugh. You are weird, but it's such good weird. You know what I mean? These are my people, this is my tribe. Um, So that was Wednesday and Thursday, and then Friday, we all found out that love wins, and what an extraordinary time to be alive. So I am celebrating with you, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast um, on the she factor. And I'll uh, explain that. I like saying that, by the way, the she factor. And if you're a fan of the TV show Wire, you know exactly the reference I'm making there. But there's also a second reference from the she factor, and it's from a story in the Bible. So what I'm going to do today is I want to talk about evolving and expanding human consciousness. This is one of the central themes of the Everything is Spiritual tour, but there's a Bible story that I recently got a chance to take people through at the Keep Going event. So I wanna take you through this Bible story as a way of helping you see what expanding consciousness looks like. Now, for many people, the Bible is something in the past that drags things backwards that's holding us back from progress. But the Bible is a library of books, poems, prayers, accounts, gospels, letters. The Bible is a record of evolving human consciousness. It is a library about progress. The Bible is a deeply progressive book. At the heart of the Bible is story after story after story of the divine meeting people and bringing them forward in expanded consciousness and enlightenment. So uh, my observation would simply be that most people have no idea what the Bible is and they read it in a very incorrect way and then they end up confused or they end up really rigid literalists who just keep quoting the same verses thinking that's what their God wants. The Bible is a library of books giving us glimpses, pictures, glances, and accounts of evolving and expanding human consciousness. There's a great story early in the Bible about a man named Jacob. He falls asleep by the side of the road. He has this fantastic dream when he's reminded of his destiny. He wakes up and he says, surely God was in this place the whole time and I, I wasn't aware of it. Come on, how great is that? That uh, to me is one of the most 
Uh, that's a great line. Surely God was in this place the whole time, but I, I wasn't aware of it. And so in many ways, you can see the Bible as a series of stories about people waking up, and that's what you and I are doing. Do you see the world exactly like you did 10 years ago? If we were to record all of your views about politics, philosophy, religion, uh, economics, relationships, if we were to record how you saw the world 10 years ago or 20 years ago and then, and then play a tape of all those opinions, would you be like, oh yeah, I still see the world exactly like that? No, of course not. Why? Because you've grown because you see things in a new, more deeper, fuller, hopefully wiser, more expanded way. The Bible is a library of books showing us what it looks like when people wake up. So today I want to focus in on a story from the book of Acts. It's a story that I read and then talked about at the Keep Going event we did recently. And even in sharing it with people and talking about all of the many things going on in it, I saw a bunch of new things that I hadn't seen before. So this is a story from the book of Acts. The book of Acts in many ways tells about the birth of the church. And I know a number of you have been sending me questions asking about church. Oh, and by the way, all your questions about church, just start something that is the thing that you want to be a part of. If it's lame, if the thing that you're a part of now isn't working, if it's actually in the way of your growth, then stop going and start something new. Start something that is the thing that you want to be a part of. You realize that people have been doing this for thousands of years. They've been innovating. They've been letting the things that need to die, die, so the things that need to be born can be born. So anyway, here's a, a story from the book of Acts about a uh, man named Peter. There's a Roman centurion, like a Roman soldier, and Romans were despised by good first century Jews. But uh, this Roman centurion has this vision, and he, he's told he should send for a man named Peter. Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. So this man, this Roman soldier, sends some of his people to go get Peter. At about noon the following day, as these people were on their way to Peter's house and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Okay, this story we're gonna—it makes me laugh because this is how the biblical writer here, the book of the writer of the book of Acts, reports it. Peter then fell into a trance. End of sentence. Are you kidding me? Like he fell into a trance. Like like why? How? Does this happen all the time? Did he have a habit of this? Was it a glycemic issue, low blood sugar? Should he have eaten earlier? Were they taking too long preparing the meal? Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, he wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, the rest of the story is about a, an extraordinary moment of enlightenment, an encounter Peter has that opens him up and changes him. It makes him a better, more free, more inclusive, more embracing person. This is a story about somebody having their consciousness raised and heightened, but it begins with, he fell into a trance. Why does Peter fall into a trance and not other people? And the Bible, the biblical writer here, the storyteller tells us this like it's normal. And then he fell into a trance, you know, like you do. This raises all sorts of questions. Why have you seen what you've seen? 
Why have the people around you had the experiences they've had? Why do some people respond to little bits of light that they're shown and other people don't? We use the phrase, some people get it and some people don't, which can be a terribly arrogant phrase. It can also be very helpful. Why do some people see it? Why do some people step into the new day and to the changes and to greater inclusion and love and peace and other people resist it? Why can two people see the same thing and the one is profoundly transformed upon seeing it and the other, it doesn't even register? There is a mystery at the heart of human consciousness. Think about an alcoholic and her family stages an intervention and all the people who love her the most gather in her living room. And they say to her, we love you so much and alcohol is ruining your life and you know it and we know it and we'll do anything to help you get healthy. And right there on the spot, the woman says, okay, what do I need to do? I'll go right now to a rehab center or to a meeting or something. And yet you take a second woman who's an alcoholic and all the people who love her most gather around her in her living room and say, we love you and alcohol is ruining your life and you know it and we know it and we'll do anything to help you. And she says, F you, get out of my house. Why can two people respond in such vastly different ways to almost identical situations? And here's why I bring this up. Is there anybody that you are in relationship with who is not on the same journey that you are on? They are digging in their heels. They think you've lost your way. Maybe they've said really unkind things to you. Maybe they think you've completely lost your mind, lost your faith, that you're headed on a slippery slope to some hot place somewhere. Sound familiar? And you are so desperately trying to figure out why they don't get it. Maybe you're part of a community or an extended family, and you've seen a whole new world open up. You are more alive than ever. And the people around you haven't seen what you've seen. And your growth has actually created all of this division and hostility and misunderstanding and tears between you and some of the people that you love the most. And you've spent extraordinary energy trying to figure out why they aren't coming along with you. Why don't they see it? And it's not only that they don't see it, why do they seem to be actively opposed to the very things that are most inspiring you and filling you with life? Here's the great answer. I don't know. There is a mystery at the heart of human consciousness. Some people open up, some people close down. Some people step into the future. Some people dig in their heels and try to keep recreating an imagined, pure, ideal past. Mystery is at the heart of human consciousness. And what's so interesting to me about the story about one of the first Christians, Peter, is the writer is telling about this massive moment of enlightenment that he has and just says, and then he fell into a trance. Like that's the only detail we get. Why did you respond to the circumstances of your life the way that you did? Why did you pick up that book and not that other book? Why did you listen to that person and engage in that conversation? Why did you take that trip and it ended up totally changing your life? I don't know. I don't know. Now, let's keep going. So Peter falls into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. 
It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, so Peter has a trance, and in the trance, there is a sheet, and the sheet is let down by its four corners, and it contains all sorts of animals. Now, historic side note, which is going to come back in a minute here, if you have a sheet, and it's filled with animals, and it's gathered up by its four corners, then all the animals are going to be touching each other and bumping up against each other, correct? Because it says, as well as reptiles and birds. So picture a sheet filled with animals, including reptiles and birds, and it's being held by its four corners. Now, by the way, the world this time, people had a much more magical, mythical worldview, and so visions about sheets with animals was a way that people communicated with each other. We'll get back to that in a minute as well. So, what did the sheet mean? First off, Peter is a good Jew, and a good Jew begins with Exodus. Exodus is the giant bang that began the scriptures. For a good Jew, their life in the first century centered around what's called the Torah, Say it with me now, Torah. And if you're on a subway or a car, say it loudly or quietly in case people are around. Torah was how, was the word for the first five books of the scripture. And a good first century Jew lived the Torah. Remember, faith was not just an intellectual, like, what do you believe, man? I'm questioning your beliefs, man. Faith was a whole way of living an integrated way of being in the world. It was your mind, yes, but it was your hands. It was your feet. It's how you care for the poor. It's how you care for your body. It's your rhythm of life, a six-in-one Sabbath rhythm of life. It's work. It's play. It's rest. It's going. It's coming. Push, pull. It's this rhythm. It's an entire way of being. And so as a good first century Jew, you lived the Torah. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the big moment in Torah that kicks the whole thing in gear is the story of Exodus, which is the story of a people being liberated. The Exodus is a story of slaves being liberated from their slavery in Egypt. And by the way, among lots of people, the book of Genesis then becomes the backstory. It's the first Bible book in the Bible, but it's the backstory. Because the question is, how did these people end up in slavery? Oh, we're going to need to figure out how they ended up there. And then that's the book of Genesis, showing you the story up to the moment when they find themselves in slavery and they're rescued. Now, why is this interesting? Because the Bible was written from the perspective of a small persecuted minority being oppressed by a global military superpower. The Bible was written by a small group of minorities living under the boot, under the oppression and injustice of global military superpowers. So whether it's the Egyptians, the Persians, the Seleucids, the Greeks, whether it's the Babylonians or the Romans. By the way, if you were part of a global military superpower, there's a chance in reading this book you would miss some of its major themes because it's not written by people with tons and tons of power. This is why Western Christians could deeply, deeply misread, misread this book because it's written by people who are a small number of people fighting for their very survival where these massive empires were marching around the world with their huge armies crushing everybody in their path. So the Bible and the central defining thing that kicks the whole thing in gear is an event. 
It is the exodus. It is people in slavery being rescued. So for these Jews, deep in their consciousness is the belief that their God is on the side of the poor, the enslaved, the oppressed. Whose side is God's on? God's heart leans towards those who are having a rough go of it. Are you with me? See, one of the central themes of the scripture is what are you going to do with your power? Are you going to use it to accumulate more and more chariots and F-14s in order to subjugate others to your way of being? Or are you going to use it to give a helping hand to those on the underside? Are you going to leave a corner of your field unharvested so the poor can come and get some food? Or are you going to use your monopoly and wealth to take even more land from even more vulnerable people? This is a fundamental question that never stops coming up in the scriptures. And so for Peter, as a good first century Jew, his whole worldview is shaped by this story and the effects of it as it unfolds through the life of his people. Now, once his people were rescued generations ago from Egypt and slavery and brought out into the wilderness, their God sets about teaching them a new way of being in the world. And so when you see passages like the Ten Commandments and don't do this and don't do this in Leviticus, it's all about how do you form a new kind of tribe? Not a tribe that's just interested in conquering and killing everybody else and taking all their possessions and becoming even wealthier, but this tribe from the very beginning from Abraham, because Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham, and I'm one of them. Hey, and so are you. This tribe had a calling from way back to not just be a tribe that's about their own preservation and wealth, but about blessing all the other tribes. Now, in the ancient Near East, culture was tribal-centric. The highest thing was your tribe, protecting your tribe, preserving your tribe, your tribe being the best, your tribe defeating all the other tribes, making alliances with other tribes so that you aren't crushed by a third tribe. But this story early on from the calling of Abraham on and the formation of the Jewish people, this story was about a new kind of tribe in the world, a tribe that exists not just for themselves, but to bless all the other tribes. By the way, this is why Jesus is so harsh on his people. As he keeps saying to them, you've lost the plot. You were supposed to be a light to the world, but you've hidden your light under a bowl. He's basically saying to them, you had this destiny, this calling to be something new in the world, but you became intoxicated with wealth and power and you lost the plot pretty much like everybody else. So when you see all of those commands and when you see all of the Leviticus long lists and stuff, this is about how do you form a new kind of tribe and how do you instill within this tribe what's called distinction and discernment. If we're not going to be like all the other tribes that are just in it for themselves, then what are the ways that we orient our lives in this different direction? So food, work, worship, relationships, laws, all that stuff that you're like, what is all that stuff? It's about distinctives. It's about being different. 
And one of the things at the heart of this new way of being is the food laws. They're called eating kosher. But this is about the learning, don't eat this, do eat this, don't eat this, do eat this. Now, there's lots of evidence that the foods in the book of Leviticus that they were commanded not to eat actually would have had serious health risks for former slaves wandering in the wilderness. So some of it's just really good health and nutrition. And then some of it's simply the power of you eat every day. I do. Food is like this intimate reminder of dependence, isn't it? If you go without a meal or all of a sudden you can't eat today, you're miserable. So food is this daily reminder of our dependence. And so in Jewish culture, obviously, food was a daily reminder that you are provided for, that you are loved. And so when Peter is told, get up, Peter, kill and eat, and he sees a sheet of all kinds of animals, what had happened is the religious authorities by his day had added a bunch of rules to the dietary laws that were sort of the foundation of distinction for his people. And so they hadn't just said you can't eat these foods and from these animals, but if any other animal touches that animal that you can't eat, then you can't eat that animal as well. So that's the whole thing with the four corners of the sheet is all the animals in the sheet, none of those animals, according to the religious leaders of Peter's day, you couldn't eat any of those animals. That's actually not true. Only a few of them were actually rooted back in the earliest dietary laws. Now, I know that can be a little complicated. It's 2015. You're wondering, Rob, why you're covering this? Because in Peter's day, there were a whole bunch of laws that he had grown up with and been told this is God's way that weren't divine in origin, that weren't part of the best beautiful path for life. So what happens is our upbringing and what we've been told, it forms neural pathways. You were shaped, you were formed. Parents, teachers, aunts and uncles, authority figures, mentors, rabbis, priests, professors, whoever it is, bosses, you have been formed. And what happens is our neural pathways, literally our brains get shaped in particular ways based on the messages that we've been sent. And Peter had been sent by his tribe some very healthy messages about being different and discernment and how to be in a new way in the world, he'd also been handed all sorts of rules and regulations that had no grounding in the good in being a new kind of tribe in the world. And so when Peter is given a vision of get up, Peter, kill and eat, verse 14, this is his response, surely not, Lord, Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. How great is that? Peter, like a good Jew, argues with this voice, and he attributes the voice to the Lord. So Peter is arguing with God. Peter has a vision. Let's get this straight. One of the first Christians has a vision, a trance, in which he's told by God, eat this. And he says, no way. <laughs> I love it. If you want to understand the scriptures, you have to understand arguing with God is like part of the tradition. 
If you've ever been angry, if you've ever had some path in front of you and you're like, I am not doing this, this is the dumbest thing ever. If you've ever shaken your fists like skinny little antennas at the heavens, you are part of a long tradition of people who said, no way, God, am I doing that. <laughs> Arguing with God is a very traditional thing to do. So the voice tells him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter said. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter's religious upbringing, Peter's religion gets in the way of the new thing God is doing. Now, come on, tell me that doesn't preach. Peter's belief that he is defending God's way is an obstacle to him actually living in God's way. Peter's belief that he is being true to the scriptures gets in the way of him being true to the new thing spirit is leading him to do. Peter is so sure that he's right, he gets it wrong. Peter is so convicted that his convictions are true that he actually misses the new thing that is happening right in front of him. Surely not, Lord. I would... <laughs> And you know that the writer, you know that the writer here of the book of Acts is laughing as he or she, probably he, writes this. That like Peter is told, do this, and Peter's like, no way. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. <laughs> I wonder if, like, the people on sheep patrol are like, this dude is seriously hard as a rock. Bring the sheep back. Let's use it on someone else. By the way, sheep patrol? What is that? This happened three times. Immediately, the sheep was taken back to heaven. Now, I know it's 2015, and you're like, why are we talking about visions and such? Because this is a story about what it means to be human. Don't get distracted on the medium of the story. Think about the humanity of it. His upbringing his tradition gets in the way of the new thing that's happening. And so the voice comes to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Here's why I find this so striking. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. I often get questions from people who I can feel in their question the anxiety. They're asking a question about beliefs. They're asking a question about faith, convictions. They're asking a question about relationships, church, heaven, hell, justice, prayer. But what I feel, my spirit, I pick up at a, almost like a cellular level, is so much anxiety. Questions people will ask about Deuteronomy chapter 9 or 1 Corinthians 4, and underneath it all, sometimes people will just blatantly say, I need to know what the correct interpretation of this passage is, or 
And it's all like if they don't understand this thing or get it right, something tragic and horrible is going to happen. Here's the deal. Relax. Relax. We don't do fear. We don't do anxiety. We don't do worry. The universe is for you. I don't know what your life circumstances are. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know what abuse or injustice or tragedy you have experienced. But when I'm talking about the divine, I'm talking about that of which nothing greater can be conceived. And I'm talking about the universe being itself, being on your side. So what I pick up again and again and again from people, good people, they want to be in the center of things. They want the full sort of pulsing, vibrant life. But what I pick up again and again is ferocious anxiety that they've missed it, that they're going to miss it. Think of it less like a thin little line and more like a rushing river. See, for many people, they were raised with this, if you don't get it right. I remember literally a guy said to me one time, oh man, if you do not have a correct interpretation, Rob, of Revelation 17, you're going to get eaten alive by your congregation. <laughs> How great is that? Really? Really, if I don't have a rock-solid interpretation of Revelation 17, I'm going to get eaten alive by my congregation. Come on! But in this story, not only does the God voice come back, but then this happens three times. The universe is shouting to you. God is like a hound on your heels. Spirit, if that's a word that you're more comfortable with, Spirit is pursuing you, revering, revealing spirit self, calling, inviting, showing you. How many of you had this experience recently? It was an offhanded comment by your kid. It was just a random flower that somehow grew up in your yard. It was a stranger making some gesture to another stranger that you caught out of the corner of your eye and something, it did something to you. It struck something in your heart. It lit you up in some really interesting way. You found yourself like, oh, yeah, we're gonna be okay. It literally tilted the trajectory of your day. I know you know what I'm talking about. Everything is always speaking to you. It's interesting, like in the ancient world, they would just talk about how the heavens declare. They would literally say, look at the stars are that beautiful, just to remind you, which is hard when you have neon streetlights. We have built entire edifices that get in the way, which is why when you go out in nature, how often you say, oh, it was so peaceful and relaxing and transcendent. Of course, you got out in creation and something happened within you and it was like you were reminded, oh, I'm okay, we're good, we're all good here. So in this story, Peter just keeps hearing the voice. It keeps talking. So here, maybe you need to take out a card right now and get a big thick marker and write on that card, we don't do anxiety here. We don't do worry here. Especially those of you who send me Bible questions. My goodness, this is joyful. This is exploration. 
This is discovery. This is what will we see next? What will we, in looking at those stories, learn about our story? What will we see in studying how they woke up about how we are waking up? That was a different day. It was a different time. It was a different consciousness. It was a different world. But what is true about their human experience that is true about ours? We don't do anxiety. We do joy. We do new. We do wonder. We do awe. We do surrender. We do confession. We do making amends with everybody that we've wronged. We do admitting when we've really blown it. We do joy. We don't do worry. We don't do anxiety. The universe will just keep speaking to you. God will just keep setting things your way. Spirit will keep tugging at your heart. So apparently after three or four times, the people in charge of the sheet are like this knucklehead. He's a long-term project. And the sheet's taken back to heaven, whatever that means. Verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon was Peter's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the Centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, here's what's so great. Peter has this trance and he has this sort of abstract, there's this picture of these animals and get up and kill and he argues with God because his religion gets in the way of the new thing God is doing. Then the sheet is taking back. It's all so very like, what, huh, huh? Verse 17, while he was wondering about the meaning, actual people showed up at his door and said, hey, we're not Jews. We're from the centurion, Cornelius's place. And we want you to come with us back to his place. See, ideas need flesh and blood. This is why, by the way, some discussions, especially spirituality discussions, can get so boring. People have coffee for hours and on end and talk, and talking is great and feelings are great and processing your experience is great, but ideas need flesh and blood. They need causes. They need action. So ideas are important and it's great to talk, but ideas need flesh and blood. And so Peter is there like, I wonder what it meant. I wonder what this thing that's happening to me. It starts in a trance with a vision, with him arguing somewhere in his head and heart and mind, something is shifting and then boom, someone shows up at his door. We need you to come to this dude's house. So what was once a voice saying, get up, kill and eat, Ever so subtly, the storyteller here, do you notice, switched to spirit and then switched to spirit tugging on him to do this thing and it becomes urgent. So what was once just an idea becomes, what is he going to do? Is he going to step into a new future and go with them or is he going to stay 
in the old? Is he going to be open to this new thing that's happening, or is he going to resist it? Because good first century Jews did not associate, did not go into the house of a Roman. Why? Because what had happened in Peter's tradition is they had said, if an animal touches an unclean animal, then it becomes unclean too. And so then people had made a natural connection with human beings. If you're a good Jew and you touch somebody who's not a good Jew and they're not clean, then you become unclean as well. So Peter's tradition had handed him a whole series of rules about you do not go in the house of somebody who is not of your own tribe and who's not clean like you. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea, which was a huge military town. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Some of you have had that same experience, people bowing down to you, worshiping you, and you have to say, I'm only a woman myself. I'm only a man myself. That was a joke. Verse 27, while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. (laughs) I love it. I love it. How does the story start? The story starts with Peter arguing with God going, no way am I going to do that. The story ends with Peter going, man, God showed me this new expanded view of humanity. And so I just came right away. You know why that's awesome? Because it's exactly how you are and it's exactly how I am. See, the things right now that you see as totally normal and natural, like why wouldn't we see the world this way? At some point, those ideas were new to you. You may even have resisted them at first. Things that you and I are like, yes, why can't people get it? Why can't they see it? Why can't they be as enlightened as we are? This is the obvious next right step. A lot of times, whatever it was, at some point, it was a new idea to us. We were going, huh, what? Think about it. How many of you laughed at the internet? I remember my sister-in-law telling us about how she could go online and buy things. And we were like, that is the dumbest thing ever. This was like, what, 2000? I was like, Give your credit card to somebody, number of somebody, and you can't even see them. You just type it in and you like let it go into space or something. What in the world? And now I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You mean I can't buy it online? Are you kidding me? Why would I buy it then? Think of how many things when you first stumbled, you probably, if you're like me, you don't even remember when that was a new idea. You don't even remember your resistance. We have selective memory, don't we? That was like a shocking new thing. We don't even remember that because now we're like, yeah, of course, it's how we see the world. It went from new to normal. It went from novel to natural. It's so normal and natural now, you can't imagine ever having not seen the world that way. (laughs) I love this story because Peter is like, surely not. I would never do that. And by the end of the story, he's like, hey, 
I realize that people like me don't associate people like you, but God has shown me. So when I got the invite, man, I jumped on it and I came and here I am. Classic, classic, classic. Okay, a couple of thoughts about this story. First, the sheet factor. And the sheet factor, and because I'm saying she like that, it is a reference to the TV show, The Wire. And those of you who have seen that show, you think that's very funny. Now, uh, hopefully. <laughs> now, okay, here's what I mean by sheet factor. All doctrine and dogma begins with mysticism. Doctrine and dogma always begin with mysticism. Here's what I mean by mysticism. A mystic or mysticism is simply when you have an unmediated experience of the divine, when you taste the presence, when you know the oneness. People talk about a God moment. People talk about transcendence. Mysticism is when you simply have a very real experience of that, which you can't access with your five senses, but is just as real or more real than anything that you can taste, touch, feel. Doctrine and dogma always begin with mysticism. So every denomination, every religion, every it began with somebody having an experience. It began with somebody having an experience. Whatever it was, and people often talk about, oh, all that entrenched doctrine, or maybe you're part of some uh, community or you grew up in something that had a long-standing history of dogma or doctrine, and it was rigid and stiff and lifeless. It began with somebody having a real experience. Now, what happens often is somebody had a sheet experience, and now all we have is the sheet thousands of years later, without the experience. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We have the ritual, we have the sheet, we have the song, we have the list of statements or beliefs, but they're divorced and disconnected through the passage of time from the original mind-blowing, heart-altering aha moment when the person saw something they hadn't seen before. So when people say things like, this doesn't line up with our doctrine, <laughs> right? Your doctrine didn't line up with doctrine. When people are like, well, this just isn't a traditional understanding, your traditional understanding isn't, wasn't traditional at some point. Everything was at some point new, heretical, revolutionary. It was a deviation from the norm. It was fresh. At some point, someone left the main path because they had an experience that told them this is where the life is. So all these people saying, no, we can't do that. That wouldn't be true to the tradition. The tradition is innovation. The tradition is something new, which leads me to number two. Saying that something new is happening is an old saying. Are you with me there? Saying, oh man, there's something new happening here. People have been saying that for thousands of years. The Bible is a record of people seeing something new. And so it moved them from A to B, from B to C, from C to D. The whole thing exists on a trajectory. Now, often the new thing is an interesting blend of the old because some things from way back there need to be reclaimed. Some things we left along the way. By the way, 
the first chapter of the Bible, which is a poem, includes an exhortation to humanity to care well for the earth. Are we caring well for the earth right now? No. So forward movement with climate change and the horrible things we've done to our, the things that are threatening our very existence in the future on this planet. The first chapter of the Bible calls us to take this sacred responsibility seriously. So the movement forward often means reclaiming something from the past that we forgot along the way and then embracing something new that we haven't seen yet. So when people are like, we're just leaving behind all that stuff from the past, if you do, you're an idiot because there's some really, really, really great things back there that often get left behind. It's often a blend, the new is, of the old and the new. Saying something new is happening is actually an old saying. Now, three, crossing the threshold. Imagine that moment when Peter goes in to that house and he's been taught his whole life that you're a good Jew, Peter, and we do not go into the homes of Gentiles, especially impure, unclean Gentiles, especially Gentiles who are all on the payroll of the Roman Empire that is making our life miserable. Imagine as your entire life you're told that would violate our tribe, our laws, that would violate God's laws, and that would put you in danger with your maker. And yet Peter comes to the house, and then he walks over the threshold into the house. Have you had any crossing the threshold moments? There is power in defining moments. Moments when you realize, oh, I haven't done this before, but this is what spirit is leading me to do. This is the next right thing. And you have voices in your head, voices from authority figures, voices from family, voices from whatever, employers. You have voices telling you, whoa, 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 we don't do this. We don't. You have voices of condemnation, shame, humiliation, voices telling you if you do this, your employment, your family standing, your integrity, your soul, your future, your eternal destiny are at stake. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And yet, spirit is doing something new and you know the only path forward is to cross the threshold. So there's this great moment, you can only imagine Peter standing there. There's a house full of people who are waiting for him to talk to them. They're waiting for him to bring fresh message about peace and hope and love. And by the way, they're part of the Roman Empire that went around the world crushing everybody in their path, announcing good news. And the good news was, we're here to bring peace. And the way that you brought peace is you held a sword up to people and you said, confess Caesar is Lord. And if people did, then they became a part of your empire. If they didn't, then you crucified them. So it was peace, but it was peace basically if you weren't interested in it, you were murdered, you were executed. And Peter comes proclaiming a different kind of peace. See, when the first Christians started saying Jesus is Lord, they were taking Roman military propaganda, Caesar is Lord, and they were essentially co-opting it for their purposes and saying, no, 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 the world is not made better 
through coercive military violence. The world is made better through sacrificial love. So Peter is coming in to tell these people about a different kind of Lord, a different kind of Savior, and a different way to make a whole new world, a new kind of peace. And he's standing there and he's got something to say. He's got a message. He's got some good news, but he has to cross the threshold to do it. Is there anything holding you back? Are there any messages you've been given? You're still, they're still playing in your head. And you know it's time to leave those messages behind because spirit is doing something new. And you need to step into the world with courageous inclusion and embrace. You need to go places that perhaps you were taught people like you don't go. You are to embrace people that perhaps you have been convinced are people that your people just don't embrace. And yet spirit is telling you, this is how we make a whole new world. Consciousness, my friends, continues to expand. It continues to rise. More and more and more people listening to spirit as spirit moves across the ages like spirit has been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We come from a long line of people who have had experiences they couldn't explain. See, I imagine some of you, you read the trance story and you're like, okay, maybe it wasn't a trance, but I know what that story. I know that story of when something happens and it happens in a strange way and it feels like a voice or a wind or a fire or a whisper or an image or a billboard or a story or a song and something in that taught me, it told me, it showed me a new vision, a new step, a new way forward. Yeah, we get those, don't we? Listen to your life. Listen to the world around you. Pay attention. The whole thing, you're living in a giant megaphone, teaching you, showing you, poking you, prodding you, leading you into a better tomorrow. It's not a thin line, my friend. It is a rushing river. It is a giant wave crashing on shore. We don't do anxiety here. We don't do worry. We do trust that we are loved. We do honesty that if there's something we need to confess, something we need to make amends for, something we need to drag up, and something we need to feel genuine sorrow about that we have done, that's what we do. We live into that. We take responsibilities for our actions. We do not do anxiety. We do not do worry. We do not do shame and humiliation. We do honesty. We own it. We accept forgiveness. We hand it out. We make amends. We listen. And then we step and we cross the threshold into whole new tomorrows. We do not live in fear. We trust that love can swallow up even fear. And that's the sheet factor, my friends, the sheet factor. All doctrine and dogma begins with mysticism. Someone somewhere saw something and they tried to pass it along to others. And now you are seeing things and you get to share what you are seeing with those around you. May you, my brothers and sisters, celebrate the expansion of consciousness happening in your own heart and mind. When Jesus speaks 
of how he is in us and we are in him, may you celebrate the cosmic Christ who is making all things new, who is reconciling all things in heaven on earth, who keeps insisting the tomb is empty, new life is here, it is now, it is yours. And may you have joy that comes from having your mind blown with just what's possible. And may grace and peace be with you every step of the way.